Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Eric Perdue, the translator of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, the first new translation in over 350 years. Eric discusses the life of Agrippa, the historical context of Agrippa's work, the meaning of occult philosophy and its relation to magic. Eric also explains why a new translation of the three books was needed, how he tracked down nearly all of Agrippa's sources, and the relevance of reading Agrippa now, especially in light of the current magical resurgence. Eric Perdue has studied metaphysics and the occult and has practiced magic and astrology for more than 30 years. His particular focus is on practical folk and astrological magic, and he is an active Santero Olorisha in the African-Cuban tradition of Lukumi. His writings on traditional astrology and talismanic magic have appeared in several publications, including The Celestial Art, Essays on Astrological Magic, and the inaugural edition of The Ascendant, the Journal of the Association for Young Astrologers. Appearing on podcast and a featured speaker at several conferences on mystical arts, including the 2015 Esoteric Book Conference and the 2017 VGS, he has been a notable voice on the subject of medieval astrology, traditional magical systems, and the legacy of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. His new translation of Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy was more than 10 years in the making. Eric, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks for having me. Yes, well, thank you for being here and thank you for your time. And congratulations on the publication of your new translation of Agrippa. Uh, my understanding is that this is the first new translation in over 350 years. 1651. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. and it took you over 10 years. I think you mentioned before hitting record <laughs> that it was more like 11 it was a lot of yeah so it was definitely a labor of love right. it, yeah it was it was it was an obsession okay yeah <laughs> for sure uh, well i want to know where the obsession came from uh and i also wanted to ask you your interest you know where did your interest in agrippa come uh come from but i think first before even getting to that is i'm sure that many of my listeners or viewers on youtube are going to be familiar with Agrippa. Um, but I also know that I have kind of a more general audience. So I thought the best place to begin is to ask you to give a brief introduction uh, to Agrippa uh, and uh, maybe the three books of occult philosophy in general. And it doesn't have to be horribly brief. You run with it. <laughs> uh, well, so Agrippa was, he was, his name is Heinrich uh, Cornelius Agrippa. He was born in Germany, I believe in the 1480s. I don't have the dates in front of me and born to a relatively noble family. His, from what I understand, his father was, uh, while it was a noble family, they didn't have a lot of money. So, uh, but Agrippa basically, he, he did the normal, you know, track, went to school early, uh, there were stories about about him learning astrology from his father, although to what degree that is is not really clear. Uh, Agrippa really doesn't have a lot of doesn't really seem to discuss astrology in the way that we're used to it today. He doesn't talk about birth charts and things like that. 
Um, but he studied medicine, uh, philosophy. Um, his focus was on, um, in fact, he lectured um, on the works of uh, uh, Johannes Reuchlin, who is a German Christian uh, Kabbalist. And um, he, you know, <laughs> his life's a little bit complicated. So he basically, I, I guess to really, I guess in a small nutshell, he went through varying periods of practicing medicine. He was a secret agent for a short time. Um, he uh, worked under, you know, different nobles and along the way he wrote and a lot of his, his writings weren't published until I would say the 10 years before his death. Um, he, he, he got permission to publish uh, a large swath of works that he wrote. Um, and those just started coming out. Three books was the last one that he came out with. With three books in particular, so, you know, I guess the story that I don't know if you're going to ask us later on, but one of the famous stories about him is that when he was young and is, I would say, beginning in his late teens, um, he was part of a kind of a loose secret society of, um, I don't want to call them occultists, but uh, enthusiasts of the esoterica of the esoteric and you know it was it was pretty controlled and and, and some of the letters agrippa seemed that he was actually the person vetting a lot of the people who they allowed um but it was more of a mutual aid society i would say and uh they wrote letters back and forth they traded notes probably traded texts and um in when agrippa was in his i think he was 23 if I'm not mistaken. He wrote the first draft of three books of occult philosophy. It was much smaller. And um, he sent that text to uh, the abbot um, Trithemius, mm. who he had spent a few months with previously. And um, basically, to, you know, to get approval, you know, for this book. And the abbot sent his approval back, gave him some advice. That letter is in three books of occult philosophy in all editions. And, um, uh, you know, time passed, apparently that manuscript leaked out. And um, Agrippa, around the time that he received his imperial, imperial privilege to write the book, uh, to publish his books, he decided to take that and expand it and officially publish it. And in his own words, he said that, um, you know, he wanted whatever, you know, errors to be his own. He didn't want to, to answer to other people, basically, uh, for their, um, you know, their versions of what he said. So um, the final edition of Agrippa, I, you know, if I were to take a guess, maybe a third larger than the original. And um, it's never gone out of print since, since it was published. We can go a lot deeper, I guess, into details. You probably have some questions about that but in a nutshell that's yeah. that's agrippa and three books yeah okay yeah no i have some background in that period of time in the esoteric traditions um uh, i've got the uh, you know a translation of agrippa the common one edited by tyson mm -hmm. uh, and i'll be honest i haven't gone all the way through it um you have 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always been on my list, but, uh, and I'll be honest, um, I've had access to the galleys for your translation mm -hmm. and now I just want to wait. I'm like, I'm not even going to bother with the, uh, that previous edition. Um, because I do feel like your translation, it just reads so much better. Mm -hmm. Um, I, my understanding is that the translation that, has been in existence. It's usually referred to the JF translation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's like uh, associated with uh, James Freak. So just call it the controversy. Yeah, yeah. The Freak but, translation uh, sounds great, by the way. But yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, James, I like that. Was it, so James Freak and John French. Those are right. the two names. Right, um, yeah. I think that I might have this mixed up, but I believe joseph peterson said it was john french he believes because mm -hmm. he was an alchemist mm -hmm. um i think it was joseph peterson if i'm wrong forgive me um i, I don't want to get into that controversy right, right <laughs> so right, it's right. jf yeah. yeah yeah well i just figured that we would just refer to the freak translation if we ever had to uh but uh you know it was uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, I was lecturing and all my lectures right now are on Zoom, you know, because we're still in mm -hmm. pandemic uh, fun times. Uh, but I was covering a, a, a Near Eastern religion class. I always include a segment on uh, the hermeticism and sort of the esoteric and alchemy, because mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important. It's part of our intellectual history and tradition uh, that students often don't get access to. Right. And I mentioned that it was also, the, there was this connection to the magical traditions. And I want to ask you about this, um, but I happen to have, I'm actually, you can't see, but I'm surrounded by stacks of books here. And I happen to have this old translation of Agrippa. And so I was able to open up and kind of read that, you know, uh, how he was defining magic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had just like the day before, or even maybe earlier that day, read your translation and I was able to uh, do this kind of comparison. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this new translation is so welcome. It's, it's so much nicer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can't fall jail for that, though. I mean, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, 17th century English, right? It's a little um, rough for some people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it certainly was. And my understanding is that the JF translation, there were some errors in it mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Uh, that you were able Especially to with astrology. Okay. And I, it's, it's actually, I, I don't understand why, because for several reasons, because A, if he was the alchemist, he should have known the astrology. Mm. Um, and if he, and, and also the astrology that Agrippa talks about was just the normal astrology of the time which is not the astrology of today. Mm. So there are, that was one of the issues that Tyson had, not really his fault, but um, is that the terminology that Agrippa uses uh, is not the same terminology we use today. And um, it's concepts that are not in modern astrology at all. Mm. And uh, so I can forgive Tyson for not knowing that because the traditional revival hadn't really taken root yet it barely started when it was published um so he was he was trying to go through ptolemy and ptolemy isn't really the best source either so but I, so very common terms and the one i, I always point out is the term perfection mm. which is p-r-o-f-e-c-t-i-o-n and both jf 
and Tyson interpret that as perfection. And so the problem here is a perfection is, is a traditional astrological predictive tool, one of the simplest ones. Basically, a sign represents a year. So your ascendant is going to be the um, it's going to be the year you were born, and then your first birthday will be the second sign, and you just keep going around in 12-year cycles. Um, perfection means nothing by itself. So Tyson wrote a footnote saying, okay, well, I think that this is the, you know, full moon or new moon. And, you know, it becomes a mess. So if you're, if you're trying to learn or, or trying to understand what a group is actually saying, you know, when you have these kind of faulty footnotes and sometimes bad translations, it just becomes a complete mess. I wanted to ask about the importance of Agrippa because uh, it, I think that it is the foundation for so much in terms of, uh, you know, I guess what we would call esoteric knowledge and traditions mm-hmm. uh, that we get, you know, not just from astrology, but like uh, herbalism and um, incense. And it was the foundation for the, like the magical lodges in Britain, I think right. like the golden dawn and the, one of the questions I have is with these translation errors, how is that going to affect what or how um, the systems have been understood for the past couple hundred years? I, I think that if you're talking about the, the way that something like the Golden Dawn is structured, I don't think it really matters. Okay. Um, but I do think it matters if when you're talking about correspondences hmm. or if you're trying to recreate, well, particularly incenses, incense recipes, doesn't make sense. I mean, wh- one of my <clears throat> favorite examples is, is um, I, th- I think it's the incense for Regulus. Is it Regulus? No, it's not Regulus. It's one of the, one of the lunar mansions. But one of the one of the ingredients is in Latin is curabe, which is a very it's not a common term. I had to really look it up. But JF says it's jet. And I'm no stranger to strange <clears throat> incense, you know, ingredients, but jet doesn't burn. Hmm. And it's not unheard of to put stones in in an incense blend. I mean, it's not very popular today, but it did used to happen sometimes because it doesn't have to burn for it to have a magical property to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as almost the sole ingredient, it's very strange because you, you you're not going to put a, a stone on top of a charcoal and expect anything to happen. Um, so I did a lot of searching until I eventually figured out that it was a local term from Spain and part of France for amber. Hmm. So cases like that, if you're trying to do a lunar mansion instance recipe and you're trying to use jet, you know, versus amber, that's a pretty big, you know, uh, pretty big difference. Um, but I, I think when it comes to the, to the lodge systems, they, they were, you know, especially Golden Dawn, they were trying to pull in everything. Right. And um, with, you know, faulty <laughs> sources in a lot of, a lot of cases, Right. And, um, but I think when it comes to the, her- the herbalism, yes, it, it does make a difference. 
um, astrological correspondences um, definitely makes a difference. Uh, the sigils, uh, there are some errors there that makes a difference, I think. Um, the sigils are used constantly, you know, to this day. Right. So, do you think that um, <laughs> that the because I know that you wrote that there were or identified that there were um, even errors in the graphics. So I'm assuming that that's where the sigils come in. Right. Did the incorrect sigils still work? It's up to you. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that one. Um, well, I think with the problem with it, it is, I mean, I guess you could, if you want to have a circular talisman, you just turn it around. Uh, okay. But um, I think the issue is that if you're trying to figure out um, its placement in a magical square, it's, it won't work okay. because it's not going to line up correctly. Right. Um, there, there is one section, it's in book uh, one on the letters of, of the planets. Uh, that one's kind of a mess. Mm. Um, in every edition of Agrippa, it's a little different. Yeah. And in the source that Agrippa got it from, it's also different. Mm. I just had to make a footnote and say, they're all different. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to take a version yeah. and go with it. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. On Google so, Books, you can find the original. Yeah. I think that maybe before moving on, we should kind of address the title of uh, occult philosophy and its connection to magic, because it seems to me that Agrippa, the way that magic is understood is probably rather different than what a person who is not familiar with magical traditions, mm -hmm. how they would think of magic. Um, so it could be even different from them. Yeah, for sure. So, 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 what is occult philosophy for Agrippa, and, and what is magic? Well, occult philosophy is is multi layered. The meaning is multi layered. So, if you ask most people what occult means, they're going to say it's secret. It is secret. That's mm -hmm. that's the major the main translation of it. But what that translation doesn't really convey is is the complexity of the term hidden. You know because Hidden, a lot of times people say that it, it, it simply means things that were kept from the outside world. So you had an occult book, you had to hide it, hide it. Or if you knew something, you had to be careful who you said that to or who you divulged that information to. And that's true. Um, that is absolutely true. But what Agrippa also means is the hidden effects of how things work. Mm. So the other name for this, which has fallen into disuse today, is natural philosophy. And that forms, I would say, a pretty big chunk of what he means as occult philosophy. Um, not all of it, because he is talking about magic. Um, it's important to realize that the time that Agrippa lived, the existence of magic and astrology were not remotely questioned. Um, even if you didn't believe in it, uh, or even if you thought that it was evil, it, it wasn't questioned. A good example is astrology with the church. You know, during many, not totally, not entirely, but many periods of Christian history, doing a natal chart might be considered to be bad, but you could use it for medical astrology. And that was entirely in fact it was it was normal uh so the astrology wasn't questioned 
its um, utility was questioned. Same thing with magic. And that, that was one of the, the main, I think, focuses of that Agrippa was trying to touch on is that uh, magic is not inherently evil. It's something that's talked about in the Bible. It's something that the church fathers talked about, maybe even did in some cases. Um, and so he wanted to sort of, you know, kind of put that in the forefront that it isn't some necessarily just some secret little thing that some old woman in a shack is doing, proverb, proverbially speaking. Um, but but from today, um, you know, we grew up in a uh, scientific materialistic worldview, and no matter how much you believe in magic or astrology, it's a it's a major hurdle that you have to get over mm-hmm. um, because magic and astrology are not supposed to work. And even when you think that it's working, there's always there's a little thing in the back of your mind that 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 kind of questions questions what you're seeing is there is there some scientific explanation for it or am i hallucinating or something like that and i don't think that that was necessarily as much of a problem back then and it's taken me all this time to even uh, approach thing approach thinking that way it's 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 so difficult difficult to get over it's still a little nagging thing in the back of my mind um and i think that from from a lot of modern magical practitioners and astrology, any kind of diviner, you know, tarot cards, I don't care what it is. The, that, that has sort of caused, I think, a, um, a sense of diminished expectations of what we can expect from, from that, from the occult in general. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we might think that a flickering candle flame is way more than what it is. (laughs) And, um, and and I, I learned that from my leukemia, world because you know it's because you know I, I, i've dealt with elders where it's just so ingrained i mean the the minute they were born they were born in that world and that makes you look at the world a little bit differently mm. and um so that you, when you're steeped in that magical worldview from birth it's very different than adopting it mm. when you're a kid or an adult i think yeah yeah that's um Something I've been, I think about quite a bit is that sort of this worldview. And, you know, it's often been said that, you know, you know, we live in a disenchanted world right now. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely one where the material takes precedence and, uh, you know, even, you know, atheism and whatnot, you know, that, you know, the matter is all there is. That's what's real. Magic and that kind Mm -hmm. of system is just nonsense. But, you know, I've often wondered, and I know this is a little bit off of Agrippa, but, um, or is it? (laughs) uh, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, But how much of the workings of magic is, or the, maybe not the workings of magic, but the ideas of it not working is part of that worldview. I mean, how much of our beliefs kind of make these things possible or deny their reality if you understand what i'm yeah i I think that that belief belief is necessary and you know even you know uh, i can't remember if agrippa says it i know it says it in picatrix but you have to have belief in it but that's true that's true of anything in life i mean you you can't become a a famous basketball player if you don't believe in the game right right (laughs) um i don't mean it like santa claus but you have to really believe that it's that is an important thing for you 
in order to do it. And, but I think that when magic is done, is approached in a certain way, the belief becomes less important. Mm. Um, or that's a chicken and the egg argument, I guess. Mm. I think I think any metaphysical practitioner has had these when they first started practicing. There, there, there was at least one wild success mm. that happened. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I've talked to some of my friends about this, and you know, one of my friends has, has said that it's almost like you know, the spirits give you this like crazy success. And that's probably, that, that might be the best magician you're going to be for many years yeah. is right when you start. And the rep, the, the, and then you spend all these years of a lot of failures, a lot of, you know, diminished success in some cases, peppered with a little bit of success uh, because that's, that's, that's the time that you have to actually put everything together and you're learning and that kind of a thing. But Ultimately, belief is, it's the, it's the, I don't know, it's a, belief is something that carries you through Mm. the process, but I don't think it's what makes it work. Right. Um, Because, I mean, the old, the old, the old, um, in the old books, when they talk about cursing, actually not even that old, we talk about hoodoo even, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when they curse people, they don't tell the other person they're cursing them. Right. Um, you know, this, this whole thing where that they say today that cursing only works if you believe in it. Well, I mean, what, what happens if that person doesn't know about it? Right. There's no belief possible. With that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And it seems to me that we're going, we're going through a kind of magical Renaissance right now. It seems. I agree. And, um, and it may be a reaction against this disenchanted world, um, but it also, I think, has really sort of profound philosophical implications. Um, I know that one of the things that Agrippa writes about is this, uh, the world soul. Mm-hmm. And more and more, I hear even, you know, legitimate <laughs> philosophers, and for those who are listening, I'm using air quotes there, um, <laughs> uh, in ter- you know, as a reaction, you know, they're, they're actually starting to say, well, maybe there is something to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there is something to uh, consciousness being a fundamental feature of everything. And if that's the case, it seems to open the doors a little bit more to a magical worldview. What do you think about, you know, Plato saying that, um, that the universe is, is an animal basically and it, it's it, when i when i realized that it sort of changed everything because it, all of a sudden it's not that you're interacting with the universe is that you are you are the universe right. you're part of it um but i think that um about this resurgence it's, it's a lot of things going on i mean a lot a lot of it has to do with media mm. um i mean really this this Modern resurgence really happened in the 1800s. That's mm-hmm. when it really started, and it went through a few fits and starts. But that really started picking up steam in, in the 60s. And um, so I think that with the, you know, the cheap availability of, of media in general, that that re- that's what started during the Renaissance too. That, that was part of that too. Is there's this relative cheapness of or inexpensive? I should say cheap of. Um, of books, you know, and today it's, you know, we can convey information for good and ill 
instantly uh, with very little effort. And uh, right now, I mean, we're especially seeing it in astrology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the <laughs> primary medium of astrology seems to be, you know, Twitter and, and um, TikTok. Um, I don't love that, but it does get people interested. And the people who are serious are, are great to investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a renaissance. I mean, what, what's happened simultaneously is, is the, the resurgence of, or the re, I guess the rediscovery of traditional astrology started in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And it, it took, it, it took very a long time for that to really take off. Um, it really didn't start gathering steam until 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. But, you know, that that's huge because, because for a hundred years or so, um, most astrologers thought that astrology was what it was. They didn't really question anything about it as far as the, the general approach to it, what a sign was, what a planet was, and how you worked with those things. Uh, suddenly we get these texts from ancient Greece, you know, the Arab, uh, most recently with Arabic material, material starting to come out. Um, and it, it, it's changed everything. And, uh, and now the occult world's kind of lagging behind that a little bit. They only started, I think, I think seriously 20 years ago. Um, and that's also starting to really ramp up now. Um, the last, over the last 10 years, I, I think it's kind of coincides. And that's one of the funny things I think is, is how the history of, of astrology and the occult kind of have these mirror histories, despite the fact that most astrologer, astrologers are not occultists and most occultists are not astrologers. <laughs> and a lot of astrologers don't even want to be called a cult to begin with. So right. I'll tell you this 2020 made me a true believer of, uh, the value or maybe the virtues of astrology COVID did it to you yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it was funny I, I did a natal chart reading um it was right at the beginning of the year before really the news was was talking about COVID at all or at least before i noticed it and this this woman asked me about her career and i said well you're going to take a hit this year uh, due to illness hmm. And um, she's healthy. And she says, what do you think it is? And I said, well, it's, it's due to illness. And I said, Does, I don't know if it's you personally, but it's going to slow down because of that. And then, you know, two months later, <laughs> whatever it was, that came out. She's, she never got sick. Ah, okay. Uh, so, but, but she, she was, a, uh, she was a, a coach, a life coach. Ah, okay. So, yeah. Well, she didn't need to get sick because illness still affected everything it did you know yeah. you know so you were absolutely right yeah <laughs> true believer after that one um <laughs> so uh, you know i was looking at some definitions of magic and i was drawing from uh, i think it's the cambridge handbook on western mysticism and esotericism mm-hmm. and it had a whole list of different ways of uh, looking at magic or defining magic and two that I found particularly relevant for Agrippa was uh, magic is ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, also uh, this occult philosophy, which is what you identified as natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. And coming from a background in philosophy, the idea of natural philosophy is not foreign to me. 
my understanding is that natural philosophy really was trying to understand the nature, to understand the natural world. And at Agrippa's time, much of that was also trying to, I don't know if this is the correct word or not, but to kind of legitimize uh, and maybe synthesize Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's more than that. It's trying to not just reconcile the two of them together, but trying to reconcile the two of them with Christianity. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't see that much of a con- as much of a conflict in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, at that time. Yeah. Uh, th- it's almost like it got integrated easier somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't really have these like I don't know these persecutions or anything like that, like you did with the Christian world. Yeah. My understanding is that within Islam, and this goes from the very beginning, is that there was an intelligence needed mm-hmm. um, to look at or for, or to read signs of God. And of course the Quran was seen as the greatest sign, mm-hmm. but early Muslims would look to the natural world and look at those as signs as you know for the greatness of Allah and most places that you find this in Christianity seems to be in the mystical traditions um, that's sort Definitely. of outside of the the borders of the traditional uh, practice or the well, traditional church well I think one of the differences is that at that time Muslims saw themselves as inheritors of wisdom mm-hmm. but, you know they, they knew they weren't the first Right. Uh, that was that was explicitly stated, but with Christianity, you have this you have this issue with um, the, the the word of the Bible being indelible. But, but you know, around this time, I mean, I guess during the Renaissance, uh, the Corpus Hermeticum was was rediscovered, and um, I mean, I mean the, the 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 one Hermetic book that was that had already been out was was Asclepius, but before that. The rest of the books weren't really known. And suddenly you have something that is as ancient as at least Moses. I mean, it could be before Moses as far as they're concerned. Uh, and, they, and they had re- really think about that. I mean, it's, so it's, it's tough enough to explain Plato, right. but to explain something that's, you know, supposedly precursor to Plato, although we now know that's not true, but. Yeah. And, and, but this is all the context of what, where Agrippa was writing. And it was this rediscovery of Hermeticism, or at least Mm -hmm. the Corpus Hermetica, um, a kind of a Christianizing of Kabbalah, Mm -hmm. uh, and this reintroduction of uh, pagan philosophers. And, uh, but yet, wasn't um, Agrippa didn't he identify as Christian? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Not just, not just Christian, but Catholic. Okay. And so was he doing like Catholic magic? Not the way we would think of it today. I mean, I think that if you say that today, um, it's going people think that it's going to look like something like Santeria <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or what they do in Italy and Spain where, you know, they do all this work with the saints, but um, Agrippa, well, Agrippa may have done that. Hmm. but it's not in the book right uh agrippa it's hard to pin down what agrippa personally was doing because Hmm. there are a few places in the book where he says that i have done this 
or I have seen this. Um, but generally it's hard, to, it's hard to pin that down. Yeah. And um, so I kind of see him as, you know, kind of a typical academic at the time. Um, he was doing astrology, but for medical purposes, for the most part, yeah. um, he may have done some planetary magic. Um, he seems to have done some alchemy, uh, but he doesn't really have this, um, um, what do you call it? Like, uh, I don't see him as this great mage, you know? Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and it may have been a bit of a unfair question because we do, especially in academics, like to put things into categories. And I don't know that the category separating religion and magic is very honest or all that helpful. Um, because my understanding is, is that early on, even maybe as far back as where, when Agrippa was alive, ma- you know, identifying something as magical was often polemical on the behalf of the church leaders. Right. Right. One person's religion is another person's magic. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't say that they were the same thing. Hmm. Um, I think that, well, Agrippa's main, I, I was saying, I guess one of his main points is that true magic requires, requires religion. Hmm. But I don't think that in his mind, religion would require magic. Okay. Um, because I, really magic, I think, it's in, in a lot of ways, I think magic is sort of what you do hmm. outside of the church. But, you know, it, it, you know, according to Agrippa, the, you know, the, the, well, so one of the problems during the Renaissance, I, I'll, let me back up. <laughs> um, so one of the problems in the Renaissance is that with all of this, you know, with the printing press becoming prevalent and all these new works coming in into being, new works being translated. And, and as we were talking about earlier, all this reconcili- reconciliation was happening. So it, it begged the question as to, okay, well, if magic exists, then what is good magic? What is bad magic? And it's not as easy to say, oh, okay, well, good magic is for nice things and bad magic is for bad things. You know, Ficino wrote about it. Trithemius wrote about it. Um, Johannes Reuchlin wrote about it. And in Agrippa's mind, you know, these all introduced problems of some kind. Um, and, but to, uh, you know, in a, I guess if we're painting with broad strokes, and especially in Agrippa's case, uh, they would see, you know, good magic as being the, you know, any kind of magic where you recognize God as the source of things. So as long as you you keep you know God in the back of your mind, you're fine. Um, but if you started believing in the uh, the primacy of nature and demons or anything else, that's when you start to get into trouble. Um, it kind of it, it's funny because I see that argument come up a lot. In um, I, I, I think you know we all love our online occult groups on Facebook, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I see that that kind of thinking a lot in the hoodoo groups. Because there's this, they always have these things that will say, okay, well, I have this plant or this whatever. Uh, what is it good for? And the answer is that, you know, sort of like in cooking, I use a lot of cooking analogies, I'm going to warn you. Uh, <laughs> but just sort of in cooking, um, 
you know, sugar is great for sweetening things, but there are uses of sugar that don't, that aren't used in desserts or, you know, things like you, you put the spaghetti sauce, but you don't eat the, the spaghetti sauce thinking that it's sweet. And it's that subtlety that, that gets missed a lot because people, people have this modern scientific, again, you know, way of looking at things where you, you know, if you want, you know, X, you have to do Y and it's always going to be that. Um, but when you read people like Agrippa, you know, you start to realize that there's this, there's so much, you know, ambiguity with, with it, which, which drives modern people crazy. Uh, but, but the, the, you know, since we haven't really answered the, the question of magic yet, <laughs> um, that, that, that kind of comes into being because the one, the one variable that's always going to be there is the magician. Mm. And um, it's the unstated uh, ingredient in, in all magical operations. And, you know, Agrippa in the second chapter is explicit on his definition. He doesn't really mention the magician quite as, as explicitly and elsewhere he does. But that's that's the thing. I mean, if, if you, you know, one magician can do the same or say two magicians can do the same thing and get wildly different results because there's a, that variable. In leukemia, you know, we call that force, the ori, which is the part of you that connects with the divine that symbolizes the top of your, crown of your head. Okay. And um, that's the ultimate authority, actually, uh, in, a, in a lot of your operations, because um, that's, that's all you can know. And that's all you can really interact with is, your, is yourself. So, you know, you can, again, you have two people doing the same thing. And you could, you could approach those, the, that one thing in a million different ways and get a million different results. I'm not sure I, I diverted to that, but I did. Yeah, that's okay. Um, <laughs> but let's kind of circle back to how Agrippa understands magic. Okay. Um, because my understanding, if I'm reading it right, uh, actually, I've got, I've got the direct quote here. I copied it out of your translation, uh, that it is the most perfect and highest science the highest and most sacred philosophy. It is the absolute consummation of the noblest philosophy for all regulative philosophy is divided into natural science, mathematics, and theology. Mm -hmm. And so my understanding is that really magic is the last three, the natural science, math, and theology. But it's a combination. Yeah, there's still a bit more that's within all of those. Right. Those, those are the simplest ways to state the three parts. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the natural world's easy. I mean, that's everything you can see. Uh, everything you can see and touch, I should say that. The mathematical world is a little bit more complex because that includes uh, astrology. Um, it includes the proportions of the human body. Uh, it includes um, letters to some extent. Letters, letters and numbers have a weird property in this thinking because they straddle both the um, celestial mathematical world and the divine world um, because they, they come from the mind of God, but they have this weird semi-physical, but semi-not reality to them. And um, so, and, and, but the, the idea is that you have these three parts and for true magic to work, you have to have, you have to unite all those three parts. Mm -hmm. Again, with that 
un the unstated fourth part, which is the magician. Um, so the example I often give is that, let's say you are performing a, performing a ceremony and you have, um, let's say you have some kind of astrology involved, but you have no spirits involved whatsoever. That's more like theater. Hmm. And you can, you, can have, you can have sacred theater that exists or can exist, doesn't exist so much now, but it can. But and theater is valid by itself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's magic. And I think that's, that's one of the really unfortunate things that's caused confusion over the last couple of centuries is the degree that spirit's involved. And in some cases, it's not involved at all. People, you know, it's become popular now, or I think it, less so over the last few years, that a lot of people think that it's just your mind. Hmm. And while your mind is, is obviously going to be involved, that is not the source of the magic. And uh, so, if you don't have that, if you don't have that spiritual part of it, then something's going to be missing from mm -hmm. from the mix, even though it may work sometimes. Yeah, that's actually one of the definitions that I found of magic is magic as psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, there's Crowley's famous definition, right? Which I always you know disagreed with because that, that's causing change in conformity with the will. I know that will is a um, complicated complicated definition in the Thelemic world, but it doesn't really explain <laughs> what it really is because causing change, that's everything, everything in the world. And you can't say that magic is everything because then if, if magic is everything, then magic is nothing. Right. And really according to Crowley's definition, you know, it could be making toast. Mm. Um, I suppose you could do magical toast, but you know. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it is magical sometimes yeah but yeah. um but that, that that's that causes so much confusion it happens with it really opened up my my vision of what astrology was because again you know the first impulse by most by a lot of people including myself is there's got to be a physical cause mm -hmm. you know it could be magnetism it could be gravity it could be vibrations whatever but you know going by with these traditional you know philosophies it really opens up the possibilities of what you're working with. So are you actually dealing, you know, when you work with the moon, is that a ball of rock that you're working with or is it a spiritual, you know, component to that ball of rock that you're working with? Would it be a combination of the two? Well, that's up to the, to the person. I, okay. I personally, uh, in, in a way, because astrology, the reason why astrology is predictive is because we use math and we can calculate the positions at any given time. So that position does seem to matter. Mm -hmm. I, I think if we're going to try to find it, try to find a physical cause, right. I mean, why would the magnetism or vibration or whatever of the planet, the ball, the ball of gas or is Venus of gas? I think Venus is rock. Yeah. Venus um, is rock. It, the, the ball of rock that is Venus, why would that cause love? Mm -hmm. And why would the ball of rock, uh, that is Mars calls cause war. You know, there's, right. there's no you know, reason why that should should be hmm. from a scientific standpoint. Which, right, sure. from a scientific standpoint, it's nothing. <laughs> right. So, right, right. Right. So you're working with the spirits of the planets. Then is that ultimately, yeah. Okay. In, in my opinion, right. And that there's a, a quote that I love. Unfortunately, I can't read the book because it's not translated. But the one quote from the book that is. Uh, it's from the um, 
Encyclopedia of the Equine al-Safa, which is in uh, which is in Arabic, and um, but they it says something to the effect of you know come brother to the um, um, you know to the you know temple of Hermes, uh, you know they say something like you know where they you know no the temple of the stars that's what it is to the temple of the stars uh, not the physical stars but the stars of the philosophers. Hmm. And, uh, and there's material, there's Arabic material where they like Al Kindi. Al Kindi is translated into English, where he it, all all it's about is how how astrology works from a hmm. you know philosophical standpoint. And ultimately, uh, really, magic and astrology are expressions of philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not they're not scientific acts. You know, in modern science, traditional science, yes. Right. Yeah, that's something I've been kind of exploring a little bit in terms of philosophy and especially the ancient Greek philosophers is that they're often presented as being just these rational beings, but yet that's not necessarily the case, you know, especially, uh, you know, Plato, I think often people will say, okay, oh, there was this mystical aspect of Plato, but there also was to the pre-Socratic philosophers. Mm-hmm. And I think it carried through, through many of the philosophers. And I always want to kind of investigate and ask, you know, well, why is it that we rejected, you know, why, why bury, why hide this other aspect of philosophy? I think it was, I think it was inevitable. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, when you think about, sometimes I think about in the, in the late traditional period, um, in England, uh, with William, do you, do you know who William Lilly was? Uh, I know the astrologer. Name, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He he was. Uh, I mean, he's one of the. He is one of the great. Was one of the greatest astrologers, but um, you know, he comes at the tail end of the traditional period, and you know, later in his life, there were these wars between uh, him and and Gadbury, who was another astrologer, and I think William Ramsey was another one, and. There are these wars, and they were all calling each other charlatans, and um, and there were some non-astrologers also making a lot of you know, really uh, behemoth t- uh, attacks against the astrologers. And you know, so it's inevitable, I think, that when you know, since you know, the our modern concept of reason was starting to sort of come into fruition, that it's obvious to kind of look at all of these um, mystical things going on as as uh, fraudulent and i think it was just it was just a knee-jerk reaction yeah and and you know it didn't really have to be that way because there and i can't remember any names I, i've read this sort of in passing so forgive me <laughs> but there were some, there were um scholars during the development of the modern scientific worldview that had more um uh, symbiotic definitions of reality that weren't quite so cut and dry, you know, materials good and non-materials bad. Um, it's it just, you know, one of those accidents of history that it just happened to work out the way that it did. Um, so it didn't have to be that way. I think that there, that there's a, you know, I, I think over time there might be a little bit of a, a bending in some ways, but I don't, I don't see it really happening yeah. anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, cause you have people like uh, the other Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> who, uh, um, who makes these who makes these ridiculous, you know, remarks about astrology that, you know, whether you believe in astrology or not is one thing, but 
you know, he he says things that, that astrologers don't even believe in right. <laughs> about astrology. And um, you can't win against those kinds of attacks. I mean, right, right. Yeah, I'm, I think that from my perspective, my interest is to try to reclaim a more esoteric mystical strand uh, because I see people really kind of craving that and this acknowledgement that yes, rationality and reason are is incredibly important, but so is the non-rational. I don't want to say the irrational or, you know, I don't know about the language, but right. you know, we, we need, we need a combination of the both. You can't favor one over the other. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I, I became accustomed to this with leukemia is you know, we, you know, the, the divination and that divinations that we do in leukemia are pretty hardcore by, you know, compared to what a lot of Western modern Western magicians run into. Um, and they can be pretty harsh. But, you know, really the good diviners, they'll be, they, they'll say, they'll tell, I've been told things like this myself, or they'll say things like, um, you know, I see some things come up, coming up about your heart. Go to the doctor. Like they don't tell you to turn your brain off and say, you have problems with your heart. We're just going to do a bunch of magic. Don't bother going to the doctor. Right. Um, it should be both because maybe you wouldn't think about going to, to the doctor. Right. You know, and I've, I've known people, not just one person, many people who've had experiences like that where, you know, they're told that something is wrong and not just to go to one doctor, go to two, three, four doctors. And eventually, you know, some, one of those doctors is going to find the answer and uh, they may, may not have done that before. And that's, that's, that's kind of, I think what you're talking about is you have, you're using um, metaphysical tools to find something that's, you know, very concrete Honestly, that's what people have always done. I yeah. think. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think it was like that. It, it, you know, granted, you know, Agrippa would have had a different concept of what you do in medicine than we do today. Right. Um, but it, it's always going to be, you know, do what you need to do, but use your brain. I mean, you don't. You don't turn your brain off. You know. Right. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people like turning their brains off. Uh, it's always been true too. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> That's not modern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know. I know. Uh, so back to your translation of Agrippa, one of the things that you did is you tracked down and cross-referenced as many of the original sources as you could, you know, what he was relying, uh, relying yeah. on. Right. Um, what can you tell us about these sources? Uh, well, one of the things that, that was a surprise to me is that um, I, I believe it was Tyson, you know, alluded to the, to the idea that Agrippa tracked down these now, um, you know, forgotten, missing, you know, uh, documents from, you know, I don't know, some forgotten monastery somewhere. It's just kind of a myth, you know, that we've developed. Um, in reality, Agrippa and Ficino and all, all these other people were using, you know, the sources that were common back then. So, that, you know, most, almost everything Agrippa uses as a source is uh, on either Google books or on some university website. Uh, so I was able to find almost everything. There were a couple I couldn't find, um, you know, thanks to academia. I was, you know, at least I knew what they were. Um, so I didn't have to start from scratch, but, but yeah, I was able to, I, I mean, I have a, a folder of about 200 books, PDFs that I was, 
able to find. But yeah, they were common. And I don't think Agrippa necessarily had all the books. Hmm. Um, like, for instance, there's a lot of talk uh, about Agrippa using Picatrix, for instance. And uh, do you know, you know Picatrix? Uh, yes, I'm familiar with Some it. people may not be. But. Yeah, but yeah, so that's what I was going to say is if you could uh, <laughs> give a um, explanation of Picatrix for anyone who may not be familiar. So Picatrix was originally an Arabic text written, I believe, in the, the, the date's a little bit vague, but probably around the 11th century uh, in, uh, in Arabic originally. So it's, it's sort of the, the main source on astrological magic. And it was eventually translated in the 13th century into Latin. That's the form that most people are familiar with. Uh, there are a couple of excellent translations of it around today. The Arabic version is going to be released any minute. Uh, I know that the translator has been working on it for a while and she keeps saying that it's coming out soon. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of talk about Agrippa using Picatrix and, you know, it's not, it wasn't that cut and dry. So he, for instance, he, um, like for the images of the Deccans, which are the, the uh, 10 degree divisions of the Zodiac, um, he mixes the material in Picatrix with um, at least one other book. And he, and he kind of stacks up these definitions. So they're pretty, they're pretty big definitions, uh, but it's, it's a mixture of Picatrix and other books. And um, Agrippa didn't seem to really use some of the juicier tidbits about incense or election, astrological elections and that kind of thing. So it makes, it makes me believe that he had notes for Picatrix. And there weren't that many copies of it around either. Um, but he had a lot. Uh, there's a lot of Ficino in there. There's a lot of um, Franciscus uh, Zorzi was kind of a forgotten figure today. Roy Klin and uh, it, you know, that, that's one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to show who the actual primary source was, and then in some cases who the secondary source is. So for instance, when Agrippa quotes Plato, he's usually not quoting Plato directly. He's quoting Ficino, quoting Plato or something like that. Um, and Ficino is the one who is translating Plato, uh, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and that's actually one of the fascinating things I did not know when I started is that uh, essentially the entire book is copy and pasted from other books, mm. which there's a few layers that people always say, Oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, plagiarism. Um, back then it was very common. Uh, that was one of the ways that you showed what you knew, but it's at the same time, to me it's ingenious. He's taking quotes from whoever and then piecing them together to form a new argument, mm. which is what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it, he did this intentionally for many, well, well, for the reasons I already stated, but also because if he's saying that magic has been more accepted throughout history, he's putting those quotes in the book. So he's saying, okay, well, it's not, you shouldn't be criticizing me, you should be criticizing Augustine, you know, because Augustine believed this, <laughs> for instance. So. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. And uh, he was doing this at a time where it may not have been the safest time to write these things. Um, you know, Definitely. because I think we still had inquisitions going on and there were definitely 
women being accused of witchcraft. Uh, and my understanding is he actually defended a woman uh, yeah. and uh, successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Successfully. I was curious about this and then um, maybe you can shed light onto this because I started thinking in terms of what he was doing with magic and writing about magic and how it was really part of a tradition versus the women who were getting accused of witchcraft, because it seems to me that there's a distinction to be made that has later been kind of muddied a little bit. Well, also the, that narrative of the witch trials is a little bit, I mean, it's a little bit of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely happened. Yeah. Uh, But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just women. I I wish I could remember this as a pretty big percentage were men. Right. Right. And there was an even bigger percentage, both male and female that were Jewish. Mm, Right. Um, So I I think this kind of wicked myth of, you know, the Christians trying to stamp down their religion. It's not really true. Yeah. Yeah. Agrippa had powerful friends. Mm. That's why he, I I think that's one of the reasons why he, he has those letters in the book um that's so he he was called uh he was pers- uh, he was accused i think off the top of my head three times maybe four times okay none of them were four or three books hmm. <laughs> interesting um there were four other books that he wrote uh one was on uh, on the defense of women hmm. um another time was i think it was on his I think well the defense of women was for sure. I think some of it were from letters that he wrote, but in every case, um, all of these accusations were done. Accusations were done uh, when Agrippa was not even in that city. Mm. They were done behind his back, so he couldn't defend himself. And in all those cases, he escaped punishment. Uh, the only time I know he was in jail was at the end of his life for debts. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, he 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 basically knew the right people. Okay. So nothing really happened, but I, he was definitely on the radar constantly. Right. right. For sure. But he was also someone who tended to say the wrong things mm-hmm. to the wrong people. Right. Um, he had, I think he had a strong sense of justice, but I think he was kind of naive. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know those people <laughs> where, where uh, maybe we are those people. I don't know, but um where you, know, you you have a, a truth that you know is correct and you cannot understand why someone else doesn't have that mm. or share that truth. And then you say it to them and they get pissed off at you. Right. And, um, and Agrippa just had that knack, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That, that happened with the witch trial that you mentioned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still investigating the European witch trials. And I know that like the um, during the Crusades, the Jews suffered <laughs> a brunt from the Crusaders. Right. Um, I'm personally more familiar with what was going on in the United States, which or the colonies, I should say, which was a different creature um, yes. altogether. Uh, because my family was partly responsible. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. Don't tell anybody. Oh, I tell everybody. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm I'm here. Uh, part of what I'm doing is making karmic amends for my ancestors. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're gonna you'd really piss off your old grand great 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 granddad. Yeah, mm-hmm. my my cousin Cotton Mather. Um, yeah. So yeah, along these same lines, uh, there's this idea, and you address this in, in in your intro, I believe, that at one point Agrippa later in his life kind of rejected 
what he was doing uh, with the three books of occult philosophy. Supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. <laughs> and the way I was reading it, even his statement, it didn't seem like a rejection, but rather saying, you know, I've corrected, I've revised mm -hmm. what I was working on. Uh, is that correct? Or he, Well, all of those. Yeah. So he, he, the, the version that we know as three books is a uh, immensely revised version. Mm. Um, it's and partially because Johannes Reuchlin published a, a book in between the two versions, uh, which makes up a pretty good chunk of um, three books, but also Franciscus uh, Zorzi published uh, Harmonia Mundi, which is an immense book. It's bigger than three books. I've thought about translating it, but I don't think anybody wants to read it. It's, it's, a, it's very boring. It's, it's a pretty tough book. But um, yeah, but it makes up a lot of three books. But um, this rejection. So the rejection that people are familiar with is from uh, On the Vanities of the Sciences that was published in the same group of books that three books was published in. I think it came out, I don't know, four years, three, four years, five years, something like that before. And so it's important to understand that the purpose of that book was partially a satire. Uh, not a satire as we would use the term today, but it was showing the folly of human learning that people go through their day-to-day -day life thinking that we know so much, but at the end of the day, we really know, know little. The, the, the primary... I think force of that book was that Agrippa wanted to make the distinction between knowledge and faith. Mm. And just like what I said about magic is knowledge really is meaningless unless it's referring to God, that he was a true believer. And so he has all these little chapters um, showing how all these different, like, well, everything, but he has chapters on, on the, uh, different areas of occult learning that are basically pokes fun at it. And those chapters are reproduced in the JF translation at the end of three books. That's not part of three books. I didn't put those in there. Uh, that, I don't know why he put those in there, to be honest. But um, I don't believe it was a real rejection because, first of all, I think that when you think about the way that on the vanity of sciences was written, it's really written in the same sentiment that three books is written in that you have to distinguish between good magic bad magic hmm. um you know vanity of the sciences is you know correct thinking and not correct thinking basically and um so I, it's a double-edged sword i mean i think that he on one hand put that in there as a sort of a safety valve but on the, on the other hand I don't think he really meant it, especially considering that he was probably revising three books as he was writing on the vanity of the sciences. Because uh, so, I don't think it was a true retraction. Um, I think I think being a doctor, he couldn't truly disregard everything. Okay, astrology, for instance, mm. the humors, <laughs> yeah. all those right. things. Right, right. Um, why do you think we haven't had a new translation in over 350 years? 
No idea. I think part of it, the, the comment that I get constantly is why do we need a new one? Mm. Um, most people really have not read all of JF's translation and or Tyson's version. Mm-hmm. I don't expect everybody to read my version either. Uh, if they buy it, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're going to, but I don't think they're going to, most of the people who bought, who are going to buy my version, I don't think they're going to read the whole thing. Hmm. It's a tough book to, to get through. Um, so I think if you just look at JF on the surface or Tyson's version on the surface, it seems pretty comprehensive. Hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize that no matter how good or bad JF's translation is, there's always room for a new translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think people realize that we all, I mean, my, my translation is going to be superseded eventually and it should be. Um, but also it's a, it's a tough book to translate. Right. Um, so you, you have to, you have to spend that, that time. So it, at the same time, occultists are, you know, by and large or amateur academics. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the idea of having to, I guess, treat these sources critically to that degree has really been uh, taken seriously until recently. Right. I mean, Stephen Skinner's doing that. There's other people doing that today. Uh, That's pretty recent. Right. I know Skinner's been around for a while, but he's getting a lot more attention now. Right. So... Yeah, I, I've noticed that myself, and it makes me wish I was about 25 years younger, so that when I was starting at school, I could actually do things that I was interested in, rather than being told, no, 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 you don't need to do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to get old to realize that most of that doesn't matter. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so uh, in the translations, we have the original Latin, right? Right. Okay, and so several and that, editions of it. Okay, and that's what you were basing everything off of the original yeah. Latin translations. So what I did is I based it on the uh, critical edition by uh, Campagni, published by Brill. Um, there are mistakes in there, mm-hmm. some of which we didn't realize were there until the not even the eleventh hour. It was like the eleventh hour, fifty nine minute <laughs> of the publication. We found a bunch of things. But anyway, I did find a few mistakes early on. And so what I would do is I, I had um, two facsimile editions, uh, PDFs. Uh, one was the first edition, one was the second edition. So was it 1533? And everyone was like 1550 something, I think. Um, and I, I just compared the two, especially the illustrations. But there were some words that kind of made it through. We found out at the last minute that the critical edition had incorrect Hebrew. Hmm. Um, I have a lot of anxiety about my book on that. <laughs> I'm hoping that it came through. Okay. But um, it, it, everybody who's tried to revise Agrippa seems like they get it wrong. Hmm. Uh, and the Hebrew is one of the best examples of that. So the JF's Hebrew is different than the original. Tyson saw some errors and fixed that. And the critical edition tried to fix it, none of whom were like the original. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that the that Agrippa was mostly correct. So, what prompted you to do this? I mean, it was such a you know decade long endeavor. <laughs> All 
How far back do you want me to go? A decade or further back? <laughs> back as far back as you want. <laughs> um, okay, so when I started, so in my Lukumi world, um, I started very young. Uh, unintentionally, I wasn't looking for it. And, which is a whole story, but I was looking for Crowley and I found Lukumi. Hmm. But can, um, can you say what Lukumi is too uh, for anyone oh, who yeah. might be familiar? Most people know it as Santeria. It's the same thing. Uh, most practitioners don't call it Santeria, but some do. Mm -hmm. It's um, the it's an Afro-Cuban religion, uh, primarily Yoruban from Nigeria. There are other cultures mixed into that. And um, it was, of course, brought to Cuba via slave trade. And the it's, it gets a little complicated because there's actually um, three major ethnic groups or really two major ethnic groups primarily uh, that, that were in Cuba, the Congo were first and they do Palo Mayombe. And the Yorubans primarily Lukumi, but there's other people in there not, that are, are not Yoruban. But um, they, both the Congo and the Yoruban, Yoruban did a very good job of keeping your traditions alive. And they had to make some changes. And, um, but by and large, you know, it, it's kept, you know, pretty, you know, pretty solid uh, with some changes. And um, I came into it. it it's, it's a very complicated. I mean, I could do a whole podcast on it. Um, I'd like to actually someday. Um, but it's basically Afro-Cuban religion. That's initiatory and all that. And my, so one's teacher is called a godparent. And so my godfather was also interested in Western esotericism uh, his entire life. And um, so I was introduced to Agrippa through him, the Tyson edition. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, so he told me about it and he, and he showed me what the book was and what it talked about. Uh, we went over some of the chapters together and then eventually he passed away. And I decided to tackle translation of Picatrix first, which was something else he introduced me to. Um, and then I found out that Christopher Warnock and John Michael Greer were working on their translation. And I decided to stop. I wasn't far enough along for it to matter. And so I sat on it for a while and I bought Agrippa just after he passed, after my godfather passed. And I started realizing that, hey, I saw a lot of, not exact, but conceptual parallels with what I'd learned through Lukumi. But also I realized that the astrology was very different than what I was used to. And it just opened up a whole rabbit hole. That's when I started studying traditional astrology and all that. Um, after I was deep into traditional astrology, I started realizing that parts of Agrippa didn't make sense. And this is partially from conversations with uh, Christopher Warnock, so I can't leave him out of this at all. And so I decided, okay, I'm, I'm just going to try, see what happens if I translate five chapters. And I immediately found problems. And I just stuck with it. It, it with The first five chapters showed me the necessity of a new translation, um, that there were there were definitely errors in it. 
but it also showed me the necessity of showing the primary sources. Tyson really didn't, Tyson was trying to do that. Um, again, this is not a dig on Tyson at all. Uh, I, I don't think he could have known most of these at that time. Um, but what he, what he was doing was he, if, for instance, if, if Agrippa quoted Plato, he would, he would quote, he would put uh, Plato in the footnotes with commentary. Um, and there's a lot of like little digs in, J, in, in the Tyson edition as to like Agrippa being wrong here and Agrippa being wrong there. A lot of these are translation errors. <laughs> right, right. But so I really wanted, I, I realized that, that Agrippa has never really been shown for what he was actually saying in the book. And it sounds funny, but um, he's never really been represented well. And so my hope is that, you know, I kept some of the commentary down to a minimum. I, there is some commentary, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to have as pristine a copy as possible for people to then argue with. Right. Because at least they can say, okay, well, I have this, I can, you know, work from. I'm personally looking forward to getting my hands on copies. I think it's going to be my Christmas gift to myself this year. Um, yeah, I've and, been, I've been sending them out. I'm neck deep in them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I saw um, uh, one of the occult groups I belong to online, uh, Susie Chang, uh, posted oh, a yeah. photograph that she had yeah. received her copies. Uh, yeah, I didn't know she ordered it. <laughs> I saw her posting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are they shipping them out uh, already? Uh, the publisher is, Inner Traditions. Okay. okay. Uh, and I, I also am shipping things out from my website. Uh, okay. it's, it's, it's not as fast because I have to get them from Inner okay. Traditions. Okay. Um, but I get more money. Okay. Um, but Amazon, I, I think Amazon and the booksellers are going to be, I think it got pushed back a couple of days. I want to say November 20th now or okay. 21st. Originally it was November 16th. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're going had, out. Yeah. Okay. Cause I had the 23rd as the date that they were coming 23rd. out, uh, but I wasn't sure um, because they're, you know, shipping issues right now. Um, I think that's why they did that because they, I know that there was a, they were kind of biting their nails a little bit about getting the uh, copies into the warehouse on time. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently they came in at the right time. And so we're, we, you know, I, I got my copies um, a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And, um, but, but early pre the pre-order people who did pre-orders had theirs for the most okay. part. All right. All so. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I am going to try to read it uh, all the way through. Uh, I know that you actually make that point that it ought to be read that way uh, yes. rather than as, you know, an encyclopedia where you can just like pick apart, you know, or go directly to what you want because it acts like a building block uh, for everything that comes for, you know, later. Well, the, you know, to use another food analogy, <laughs> um, the example I, I always think of is, I've, you know, like if you look at, Julia Child's mastering French cooking book. She, you know, she has a section on the, the mother sauces. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then later on, you have a recipe for some totally different dish and they'll say, okay, make a, a bechamel sauce. So there's no recipe for bechamel. And, um, but you have, to, you have to pick through it and find the bechamel. She, you know, she's nice and has page numbers, but <laughs> um, but the, the point is that she's not going to necessarily tell you in every single recipe, every single thing you have to make because it's elsewhere in the book. 
Mm. And that's kind of what Agrippa did. It wasn't so much, you know, in, in the last chapter, he says that he mixed up some of the material. Um, you know, it's a ten, I think there's a ten, tendency to people, for people to, you know, kind of make it like a, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code sort of thing. You have to decode mm. the book to get the true meaning of it. Mm. That's not what he was doing. It, it's just simply because he introduced, you know, for instance, he introduces elements at the beginning of the book, but he talks about elements all throughout the book right. in, in different ways that that can't be contained in just that one chapter. So you will miss a lot of material material if you just, you know, thumb through the chapter headings. Yeah. Well, so much is like that. I mean, one of the classes I teach is logic and logic it builds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll hear the same language later on, but if you don't have that initial building block, uh, you're going to miss a lot. It's really like modern science books in general. Yeah. You know, because, yeah. you know, it's sort of like having, you know, if you're to have all of science in one book, which you can't, you know, it's, it's sort of like having, you know, the beginning you have, you talk about atoms. Mm. And then you talk about the combinations of atoms, you know, molecules, and then you kind of build off of that. That's kind of what he's doing. So uh, just a couple more questions before I let you get on with your day. I know that there are, people like myself and, uh, you know, like Susie Chang, and I can think of a few others uh, who are really looking forward to reading uh, your new translation. But just in general, why, why should people read Agrippa now? Because I think that philosophy is something that's missing by and large in modern magic and astrology. Mm-hmm. And I said earlier that magic and astrology are really expressions of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, there's no one answer. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's sort of sort of like saying, "What is philosophy?" Right. Yeah. Uh, what does philosophy believe in? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> but um, because right now we're we're living in a sort of dis, we're we're in a sort of disjointed stage in our history. You know, if you're interested in magic and the occult in general, metaphysics. Like I said earlier, we're not, we don't live in that world today, you know, that believes that those, those things actually exist or work. And there's, there's a point in your life, if you're serious about it, that you have to be able to internalize what those things are for you. Each person's probably going to be different. And the, and that, that's, that process starts by asking the right questions, not necessarily by getting the right answers. And that's why I think Agrippa is important because you mean, I don't agree with Agrippa on everything, um, but it got me to create the sort of inner dialogue of, you know, well, okay, what does this actually mean? You know, if we're doing astrology, what is it actually doing? If we're doing magic, what does it actually mean? And, you know, I have the answers that I formulated that it will change over, over time. Hmm. Um, Agrippa's probably changed a little bit over his lifetime. Well, he did actually, because he wrote two versions of the book. <laughs> um, but we don't have that today. Um, you know, the people who read that book in the 16th century had to have been uh, educated, which meant they knew their Plato, they knew their Aristotle. And, um, you know, today people just don't, I don't think you have to know Plato and Aristotle to do magic or, and astrology, but, but again, they had that philosophical grounding. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's a, it's a sorely missing area. And I think it causes, you know, again, you know, there are favorite online groups, you know, just these really inane approaches, right. you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's I, sad. Yeah, I I like returning Agrippa to a place in the intellectual history of the world, yeah. uh, because it seems to me that there's always things of value to be found in that which has been discarded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Agrippa is you know it, it's it's an unfortunate thing that he's only known for three books, right? Because he was he was a, he was a you know, he was a great thinker of his time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, kind of a proto-feminist, mm-hmm. uh, not in our modern sense of the word, for sure. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, maybe steps and all that. But today we just think of him as a, you know, as a Faustian, you know, character. He was actually, right. you know, he was a, he was an intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at some point you, I think this came from you, that you said that he was a mainstream scholar of his day. Right. You know, it wasn't anything obscure. He was just doing what others were doing. Right. Except, you know, what, what, what's unique with him is, is that, you know, he did, he frankly did a better job than, you know, especially Ficino, I think, mm. of, you know, formulating this, this whole um, cohesive worldview. And that's, that's the amazing thing of three books. That's why I think it's, it's stuck around so long is because there's really no book like that before or since right. no one's tried to do that since Agrippa that I'm aware of. And um, you know, it didn't come with the theory of the world, you know, from a magical standpoint, uh, I'd be afraid to do it myself. Right. Um, but, you know, Ficino had holes and, you know, it, it's partially not Ficino's fault. Probably it's because Agrippa benefited from, standing on the shoulders of giants himself and he was able to take what they learned and, and build something from that um but no one's no one's done that to agrippa right it's it's, it's a, frankly amazing and i can't imagine trying to do that right especially with that kind of confidence hmm. yeah yeah so uh last two questions <laughs> uh number one <laughs> what are you going to work on next uh as a as any other undiagnosed ADHD person, <laughs> I'm not sure. I have a few things in, in, in process. I've always had three or four books in process. Okay. Um, I have a tendency of choosing the hardest thing possible. Mm. So one long-term project is a translation of a very large astrology book that's never been fully translated. That's physically larger than three books. So of course it's oh. going to be another 11 years. But I want to write a book on leukemia. Okay. Uh, there aren't too many beginners books out there, uh, right. especially for non-Spanish speaking people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've been thinking of that and that's, that's actually a relatively easy book and maybe a book on a uh, beginner's book on traditional astrology. Okay. So. All right. Are you, are you taking a break though? Have you had a break since uh, sort uh, of publication of kind of, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in the transcription stage of the, that astrology book. Okay. And that's, that's my like zone out. I have a movie on type of activity. Okay. I'm like 400 pages into it. Yeah. So. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so the last question then is where can people find out more about you and your website where they can order your book? Um, Books, I should say. Well, I wrote right now a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my website's ericperdue.com. It's very hard to remember. I don't, 
I have a blog there. I haven't really updated it in a long time. So, uh, but I have my astrology readings on there and of course the book. And other than that, I'm on Facebook uh, posting a lot of pictures of cats and, memes and <laughs> occasionally, occasionally uh, profound things. All right. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a rarity for Facebook. I um, know, but you know, yeah. we all like cats. <laughs> yeah, we do. I have one sitting on me right now. Uh, so, okay. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really you. appreciate you taking uh, this out of your day to speak with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, and uh, again, I am very much looking forward to getting my hands on uh, uh, your translation of Agrippa. Six, six uh, what somebody called out their uh, wisdom chunk. Yeah, well, I've got yeah, I've got I've got a lot of wisdom chunks I need to get through, but that's one that I definitely want to. Uh, I'm trying to do this sort of historical uh, study, I think, of our Western esoteric traditions. I started yeah. taking a deep dive a couple of years ago. And, he, he's uh, a good he's a good person because uh, well, I put a bibliography in it, mm-hmm. so <laughs> uh, and all the books are here are available. I mean, you can you, you know you may not you may have to translate it from Latin in some cases, but. Everything's out there. Yeah, that, that's, that's beyond the my that's that's beyond my ability. Maybe a little bit of Sanskrit, but yeah, I don't I don't do the Latin. You got me on the Sanskrit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Eric, thank you again. I, oh, I thank you. Very grateful. All right. And that's a wrap on episode twenty of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching. If you are part of my YouTube audience, if you enjoyed this podcast please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star rating really does help. If you have a minute to spare, consider sharing a positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and a lot of work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube, and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.